There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Today on a special two-hour edition of The Readout. There's also growing hostility to religion, or at least the traditional religious beliefs that are contrary to the new moral code that is ascendant in some sectors. The challenge for those who want to protect religious liberty in the United States, Europe, and other similar places is to convince people who are not religious that religious liberty is worth special protection. Justice Samuel Alito utilizing his First Amendment rights last year to share his personal views about religion. The problem is Alito and the other right-wing justices are imposing their personal, moral, and political beliefs on all of us. And new reports show how they're using made-up plaintiffs in recent Supreme Court cases to do it. Also tonight, new details on Donald Trump's effort to overturn his election loss in Arizona. Amid new reporting that special counsel Jack Smith is giving close scrutiny to Trump's clown car team of lawyers. Plus, America Post Dobbs, North Carolina's 12-week abortion ban takes effect as Republicans in Ohio work to make it much harder to protect abortion rights, even though a majority of Ohioans support those protections. And we begin on the eve of the 4th of July, during a time in America when a lot of people are seeing their freedoms being taken away. And that is in large part due to the Supreme Court of the United States, mainly the court's six conservative judges whose decisions last week, peeling back some rights and protections Americans have enjoyed for decades, were tainted by corruption. And no, I'm not just talking about Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito's fancy billionaire-funded vacations. I'm talking about their total disregard for the idea of standing, the legal concept that lawsuits in any court can't just be brought on the grounds that an individual or group is unhappy with whatever the law is. That is not how it works. The plaintiff has to actually suffer some kind of injury. It's pretty basic stuff. But apparently six of the justices on the highest court in our country must have all missed that day in law school, as they've demonstrated in some of their latest rulings. 303 Creative versus Elenis, for example, the case that basically gave businesses across the country a green light to deny services to customers if they are LGBTQ. That was all based on a completely made-up scenario. Plaintiff Lori Smith, backed by the far-right Christian group Alliance Defending Freedom, sued the state of Colorado because she wanted to make wedding websites someday, but didn't want to make them for gay couples because it goes against her religion. But here's the catch. No gay couple ever asked her to make a website for them. According to court, rule, court filings from the plaintiff, a man named Stewart contacted Smith in September 2016 about his wedding to Mike. He wrote that they would love some design work done for our invites, place names, maybe even a website. Well, the New Republic reached out to this Stewart to learn that not only did he never once ask Smith for any of this, He's not even gay. 
He's been married to a woman for 15 years. And that call with the New Republic was the first time he had even heard about the case. Meaning, what is now the law of the land was all completely based on a hypothetical. Whether or not they had standing was completely irrelevant, however. And this is a pattern. The case ending affirmative action, for example, was brought by another far-right group, led by conservative activist Ed Blum, who is white. That group argued that Harvard's and the University of North Carolina's policies discriminated against Asian Americans. But here's the weird thing. No Asian American students came forward to testify to having experienced said discrimination. In fact, the only students, Asian American or otherwise, who testified were in favor of race-conscious admissions. And with the student loan forgiveness decision, the court ruled in favor of six red states who were challenging President Biden's executive order. Not actual students who had loans or debt. But the Supreme Court doesn't care who the plaintiff might be, if they have any involvement with the case, or if, if they even exist. If the plaintiffs don't have standing, the six conservative justices will just make it up. Whatever it takes to keep handing down these draconian decisions that align with their political ideology and right-wing religious views and that keep the right-wing billionaires who take care of them happy and fueling up those private jets. Joining me now is Melissa Gira Grant, staff writer for The New Republic, Dino Badala, MSNBC columnist and host of The Dino Badala Show on Sirius XM, and Maya Wiley, president of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Uh, Melissa, welcome to the show. I do want to start with you. Let's talk about this 303 case, because it seems to me that it is a case based on a completely made-up thing and a man who didn't know he had any involvement with it. And you're, I think you've done some reporting on it. Yeah, I started the reporting on it. Um, this case is based on something even more made up than this individual inquiry for a wedding website. So the the main claim that Alliance Defending Freedom was bringing in this case was that their client was not allowed to even advertise her business making wedding websites, which did not exist. So there's a business that didn't exist. She's not allowed to advertise throughout business, they said allegedly because of an anti-discrimination law, which is the law they have now eroded. Um, and then in the midst of that, they bring this inquiry from an alleged same-sex couple. Um, ADF is spinning right now. They're trying to say, oh, this doesn't matter. We brought this on much bigger grounds. But like two things to know about that, the much bigger grounds are actually even more imaginary than this inquiry, if that's possible. You know, she has yet to advertise for this service. And they're saying it's a pre-enforcement challenge. And yes, those exist. And ADF often loses them, actually, when they're on the other side. So this is something that was meant to affirm the religious rights of this woman, Lori Smith, and people like her at the expense of queer and trans people. ADF can spin it however they want right now, but the reality is this person whose name is on the inquiry, Stuart, he didn't make it. There is no genuine same-sex wedding inquiry behind this. And ADF attested in court that there was. And, and just, to, just to be clear, Melissa, did you talk to Stuart? Yes, yes. I found Stewart's contact information in the course of going through court filings. And when I spoke with him, I expected him to say, you know, oh God, I've heard from a million reporters, like here's another one. 
but he hadn't. No one had called him before. He had no knowledge that his name appeared in this court filing. He had actually heard of the case because by the time I called him, like last Tuesday, the case had been argued at the Supreme Court and it was in the news a little bit at the end of last year. So he actually knew about it in the context of his work as a designer. Like that's the other kind of ridiculous thing here, right? Like he's a designer. Why would he be trying to hire another designer to make this non-existent wedding website? So he was, I mean, he's somebody who supports LGBTQ rights. He supports abortion rights. Um, everything that ADF is for, everything that this case is about, he's stands against that. And it's just a very disorienting experience for somebody who's truly just a private person who, for reasons that are still unclear, his information now has become part of this case as if he is a, a real half of a same-sex couple. And, he, and just to be clear again, he's not part of a same-sex couple because he himself is not gay. Correct. Yes. Stuart is married to a woman. Stuart has been married to a woman for more than a decade. Um, you know, I'm just like a little anxious to get into the particulars of who he is because he is truly a private sure. person and lots of people have been calling him. Mm -hmm. um, also, given the reality of this case and who ADF is allied with, I think his concerns yeah. for harassment and backlash are pretty significant. Um, and I think that, you know, I've spent a lot of time texting with him, talking with him, and my sense of him is that there's just no reason on earth that he would have placed this inquiry. And also to be very, very clear, I don't know for sure. I don't live inside Stewart's computer. It may come out yeah. that he did. Even if that is the case, what ADF is claiming that this is a genuine inquiry, that's still false. Okay. So I, I want to establish all of that, Maya, before I come to you to ask how this is not illegal, deeply unethical. We're going to come back to ADF in a moment. But this sounds like a completely specious case. How could it have possibly come before the Supreme Court? And how could they go through oral arguments and go through this entire case and that never come up? You know, let me just say, Jerry, first of all, Melissa, thank you for that reporting, because, you know, when you bring a case, you're supposed to have what's called a case or controversy. That means something has to actually have happened to you. It's part of what we think about the courts. You have to have something called standing, which is that you are supposed to say that you have had some form of palpable injury. And I think what Melissa has walked us through is exactly the point of there was no case. There was no controversy. There was not even any stated injury because she didn't have a business. And this did come up in lower courts. Uh, and, you know, ADF kept changing its filings to try to assert that it had something there, including months after it filed its original complaint, kind of updating it to show this uh, alleged um, uh, request that appears to be false. So I think at the end of the day, you know, you said it right, Joy, when you said this isn't supposed to happen. You aren't supposed to be able to get all the way up to the Supreme Court without any factual case that demonstrates that you should be able to be in court in the first place. And on one level, if in fact this was fabricated, it would be a felony because you have to affirm under oath that would make it perjury if it's untrue. Uh, but but I think the end of it, the day, it goes back to your other point, is the Supreme Court wanted to take this case, even though it blew in the face of decades of, of Supreme Court precedent that said, you know what? You don't have to open a business. If you are religious and have strong views, 
You are allowed to have those views, but that doesn't mean you're allowed to deny anyone else service if you open a service business. And what it did is say, we don't care. Well, I mean, we know that they're trying to enact their religious and political views. I think that's very clear. But the, the, the one more specific question before I bring Dean in for you, Maya, should there be and can there be sanctions against the attorneys? I mean, can they keep their bar licenses after making up a fake case and arguing it? And can there be sanctions against the members of the Supreme Court who knowingly affirmed a, ca a case with attestations that were lies? Well, first, uh, uh, someone can always ask for a disciplinary proceeding against the attorneys. Of course, like all things, there has to be evidence that they, in fact, knew that there were attestations that were not fact-based. So like all things, we want to see due process, but absolutely on sanctions. Uh, there's something called Rule 11 in the federal courts where you can be sanctioned and actually find money for not paying attention to the rules of the courts. In terms of the Supreme Court, you know, as we know, we need ethics reform. As we know, uh, the only way to really go after any Supreme Court justices for wrongdoing is impeachment. Uh, and we are pushing very hard for ethics reform as a civil rights community, as the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, because we simply can't have a Supreme Court and law of the land that the people can't trust. Well, you can get 67 members of the United States Senate. Think about your voting when you vote for the Senate, because if you've got 67 Democrats in there who are willing to impeach one or more of them, they could win an impeachment. That is the way it works, just like with the president. Dean, let me bring you in here. We've talked a lot. Melissa talked about ADF. That is Alliance Defending mm -hmm. Freedom. That is who brought this case. They're also behind the Dobbs case, which ended abortion rights. They're behind the Mifepristone case, which is trying to make the Mifepristone, the abortion drug, illegal nationwide. Here is just a little bit from Ms. Magazine in 2022 about this group, Alliance Defending Freedom. Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF, has received six-figure sums from donor trust and donors capital fund entities designed to hide the identity of their huge right-wing donors. The Charles Koch Institute, created from the fortune of billionaire industrialist Charles Koch, also gave them $275,000 in 2020. Um... Your thoughts on the fact that this appears to be a billionaire-funded effort to take rights away with hidden donors paying for it. This is absolutely what it is. And all they're doing is giving their case to the Supreme Court knowing, as you joked in the earlier in the, in the settlement about, did the, these guys not go to law school a day about standing and actual case and controversy? Of course they did. They know better. They don't care about the law on the Supreme Court anymore. They care about political goals. And so the ADF lets those cases get up there and allows the six Supreme Court justices to give political decisions. At this point, the Supreme Court should just move down the street to the Republican National Committee and have their offices there. It's like a six-minute walk. It's not that big deal. Save us some money. Walk down there. Because when they had poll two weeks ago, nearly 70% of Americans look at this Supreme Court and say they are mostly motivated by politics. Only 25% say law. So you don't need a law degree anymore to figure out what this court's going to do on these hot-button issues. Look what the GOP wants. Look what their donors want. Look what they're raising money on. And they're going to deliver it. So you don't need to understand the law, the intricacies. Why does this legal decision match this one from a legal point of view? Where is the textualism? Where is the originalism? It doesn't matter. It's purely yeah. politics at its worst. And, and, you know, about impeaching Supreme Court justice, that's a tough one. You know what? 2024, Democrats must make reforming the Supreme Court, ethics rules, lifetime appointments ending, expanding the court a big issue. It'll motivate yeah. people to come out. We need to make the court a court again. 
Yeah, they could literally um, just, you know, get rid of the filibuster and by a 51 seat vote, expand the court and pass at this rules. You don't need a a law degree to be a really great comedian or a uh, commentator, but you have one. You happen to have one, Dean. So I'm going to go through a few more of these. People may may not know that, but you are a lawyer. Uh, This is the affirmative action case. No testimony from any Asian American plaintiffs. The two Supreme Court cases did not feature testimony from any individual Asian American plaintiffs who remained broadly anonymous. Asian American students did testify in favor of affirmative action. Let's go to Students for Fair Admission, the group that brought that case. Significant donations have come from prominent conservative funders, Searle Freedom Trust, the Scafe Foundation, Bradley Foundation, um, who were behind some of those billboards trying to scare black people away from voting years ago along with at least $3 million from Donors Trust, which has been called the dark money ATM of the right, and of course the Koch and DeVos families among its major contributors. The loan servicer in the student loan case didn't even want to be involved in it. One employee of the organization called Mohila said, we're part of the lawsuit preventing loan forgiveness. Are we the bad guys? They weren't involved in it. Again, nobody was a plaintiff. In, in adjudicating Missouri's claim, This is what uh, Justice Kagan said. The majority reaches out to decide a matter. It has no business deciding. It blows through constitutional guardrails intended to keep courts acting like courts instead of like legislators. Your thoughts, Dean, on the fact that this Supreme Court majority seems to be acting not just in their political interests, but in the interests of dark money from billionaires who also fly them around the country. Right, which this court made legal in Citizens United, a different composition, not the exact same justice, but they, they ushered in dark money. They've corrupted the system. And the result is more and more Americans, the record low confidence in the Supreme Court, which is not good for any of us. If we lose trust in our institutions, that what do they mean anymore? It's just nine people in robes. People start so, but openly ignoring them. It's dangerous. That's why we need reform. That's why Democrats need to make it a key issue. And this affirmative action, ending affirmative action for colleges, Great Washington Post study showed that in states they already did that. Race was not allowed to be considered. It was underrepresentation of black and Hispanic students and overrepresentation of white students. So it's anti-integration at its essence. And it's also the goal. <laughs> Let's just be clear. It's their goal. It's that's what they want. Yep. Melissa, that's their goal. Uh, Melissa Gira Grant, thank you. Excellent reporting. Dean Obadala, Maya Wiley, thank you both, my friends. And up next on the readout, abortion rights advocates are going all out to make sure abortion rights are on the ballot in November. And their opponents are doing everything they can to keep that from happening. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. 
One year after Roe v. Wade's reversal, the anti-abortion front is intensifying its war on women's bodies. In North Carolina, a new law has just gone into effect that restricts most abortions after 12 weeks of pregnancy, bringing its limit down from 20 weeks. Anti-choice conservatives know abortion bans are unpopular among Americans. Remember, their extremist stance cost them dearly in the midterms. And so they're relying on a tactic we've seen with voting rights. They can't win, so they cheat. That tactic is underway in several red states, such as Ohio, where Republican lawmakers set up an August special election to decide whether to make it harder to amend the state constitution. Make no mistake, this scheme is about abortion. For more than a century, Ohio voters could amend the state constitution with a simple majority of more than 50 percent of the vote. But this special election will decide whether future amendments will instead need the approval of 60 percent of the electorate. The move will make it harder for voters in November, who will decide on a possible ballot measure to codify abortion rights in the state constitution. Joining me now is Kelly Copeland, executive director of Pro-Choice Ohio, and Aaron Haynes, MSNBC political contributor and editor-at-large for the 19th. Thank you both for being here, Ms. Copeland. um, Let's talk about this. Who is behind this move to make it a 60 percent threshold in Ohio? And do you agree, am I right or wrong, that this is about abortion? It is, of course, about abortion, just as you've said and just as they've admitted. Um, We have a state that is controlled by a gerrymandered legislature, um, and they don't they don't want you to have a voice in your reproductive health care decisions or in your governance. That's why they've put this special election on the August ballot, because they know that Ohioans are poised to vote to amend our state constitution so that we are guaranteed reproductive rights going forward. But they think that they're going to lose. And frankly, I do, too. That's why they're trying to change the rules. That's why they're putting a special election on in August, a time when many people are on vacation because they want to change the rules. They want to say, oh, we've had 100 percent, 100 years of majority rule, one person, one vote. But we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to ask you to dilute your voice and only, you know, be able to pass things by 60%. It's the it's the most clear indication I've ever seen from them that they know they're out of step with Ohioans. Um, let's go through this. Um, there, the, the person who's behind this Ohio amendment, according to CBS News, found that the Republican effort um, is one flank in a coordinated nationwide campaign. This is CBS's reporting, heavily funded by Republican mega donor Richard Uline to raise the threshold to pass any citizen uh, initiated amendment. Uline, he's based in Chicago. He's a billionaire Republican mega donor who has supported groups involved in, oh, the January 6th effort and subsequent efforts to overturn elections. So, Aaron, once again, we come back to the same kind of billionaires who want to restrict voting rights overall are also funding efforts to restrict abortion. Your thoughts? Yeah, Joy. I mean, look, we are in a moment where we are having a conversation about the overall erosion of rights. Uh, The Ohio case is something that we've been covering uh, at the 19th, as as well as uh, these abortion bans that are that are literally changing in real time. I would direct anybody that's watching your show to watch we um, to to go to our website at 19thnews.org. We have a dashboard that is literally kind of laying out the the situation state by state. And and we are updating that uh, sometimes even on a daily basis as, as things change, either in state legislatures or in 
the courts. But but yes, I mean, you've got both sides basically working overtime to outmaneuver the other uh, on the other side of Dobbs. If anybody thought that that thing, you know, that this abortion fight was going to be over after that ruling a year later, I think that, that we are very clear that that is absolutely not the situation. And Aaron, you know, just stay with you for just a moment. There's a Florida bill that is already underway to try to make it so that they that any citizen required initiative would need 66.67 percent. That actually failed to pass. It had passed the House, but it made no headway in the Senate. It would have required that. Uh, They're getting so extreme because it's very clear that ending abortion access is very politically unpopular. Um, Just in your reporting, Is there any group of Republicans in any state that has reacted to the unpopularity of this by trying to slow down? Because it seems to me like they're they're speeding it up. They're getting more aggressive about trying to ban abortion. The more women say we don't want it. Yeah, it, it certainly doesn't seem to be the case, Joy. And, and even more to your point, what we also did not see happening in state legislatures and in the wake of Dobbs and, and in this past legislative session earlier this year, you didn't see Republican-controlled legislatures who uh, you know, were passing uh, laws to restrict abortion access, passing any laws uh, or many laws to, to, to uh, you know, really help uh, the, the people who we know will be impacted by this, especially in states where we know uh, maternal mortality rates are high. Uh, this is a discrepancy that the vice president has has pointed out, continues to point out in trying to help voters understand what the stakes uh, uh, really are headed into next year. But but really, uh, what people not only what people's access is to abortion, but to, to reproductive care uh, overall. Uh, right now, especially in that region of the country. You've got North Carolina just Saturday passing uh, a 12, I mean, uh, the 12 week ban that they passed going into effect after a federal judge let that go forward. There are very few places in the South right now uh, where people uh, you know, are able, able to get access um, to abortion in a timely manner. And clinicians are worried about what impact that's going to have uh, on safety and, and access to reproductive care. And we know that we've seen uh, Kelly Copeland in states that have banned abortion. You're also seeing OBGYNs leave the state and uh, people who are going through medical school declining to take residencies in states that have abortion bans because nobody wants to take a job in which they could be sued or end up in prison for giving people health care in abortion. Um, There's a 22 week ban right now. Patience, because you've had two back to back, very far right wing anti-abortion governors um, back to back. Um, your last two governors, Republican governors, patients have to make two trips in order to get an abortion. And there has to be parental consent for minors. So uh, uh, Ohio is already a tough state to get an abortion. Um, how is the mobilization going to try to get enough people, a critical mass to vote in this off year, off month election to make sure that you don't wind up with a two with a 60% requirement to pass this initiative in November. Well, you're so right. I mean, Ohio is on the front lines of the for abortion rights in America this year. And that's yeah. why the Ohioans for Reproductive Freedom, which I'm proud to be a part of, is a coalition of Ohioans who have, you know, put together thousands and thousands of volunteers who have collected hundreds of thousands of signatures. And we're going to make history on Wednesday when we file those signatures to qualify for the ballot to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot in November for Ohioans to be able to say, we will never again be under the tyranny 
of abortion restrictions like we have been this time last year, where people were being forced to flee Ohio. But that will never happen again. And that's why we really need everyone's help. We need people to visit us at OhioansForReproductiveFreedom.org to find out how to get involved in this campaign. We're mobilizing thousands of people. And frankly, it would be great if people could chip in a few dollars because, as you mentioned, we're up against some billionaires who have no problem attacking democracy so that they can make the decisions for all Ohioans instead of us making them for ourselves. And we are determined. We are absolutely determined both to turn out the vote in August to vote no and then in November to vote yes, because there's no circumstance that we will surrender to this tyranny, that we will give up our bodily autonomy, that we won't fight for our friends and neighbors whose lives literally depend on these two votes this year. And Erin, I know that you've interviewed the vice president and talked with her, and I'm going to let you go ahead. But yeah, because I wanted to find out what the administration thinks this is going to do to the overall look of the of this year's elections. But please. Well, Joe, I just want to pick up on on the last point that was made. I mean, what we do know also in the wake of Dobbs, you have had when abortion is on the ballot, these ballot initiatives, they have been successful. I mean, they are six for six so far in Ohio is the next one up. And so, you know, with with, uh, this this, uh, move to try to make it harder for that initiative to pass, they know it is because when the people uh, have had a chance to make their voices heard in their respective states, uh, that has been an effective means of pushing back against, uh, you know, what these state legislatures, what state and and, and, and federal lawmakers at the, in the GOP want to happen, uh, which is in contradiction to your earlier point uh, and out of step with, with the, how the majority of Americans feel and what they want in terms of reproductive access. Indeed. It is it is an election mover, and I think they can see that. And there's a lot of other elections going to be on that ballot, too. And so I think they're quite worried for good reason. Kelly Copeland, Aaron Haynes, thank you both very much. And up next on The Readout, I recently spoke with Pulse nightclub shooting survivor and gay rights activist Brandon Wolf about his moving, beautiful new memoir. We'll bring you that conversation next. Over the course of the past year, the United States of America has become an increasingly less safe place for the LGBTQ community. Just weeks ago, the Human Rights Campaign, for the first time, declared a national state of emergency for LGBTQ Americans. A report from the Anti-Defamation League and GLAAD says there's been more than more than 350 incidents of anti-LGBTQ harassment, vandalism or assault in the U.S. since last year. Not to mention a record number of anti-LGBTQ bills have been introduced in Republican-controlled state houses across the country, many of which have become law. And ground zero for this anti-LGBTQ movement is Florida, led by its governor, Ron DeSantis, who's been seemingly, who seemingly made it his entire goal to ban everything from drag shows to even just talking about sexuality in schools. This, of course, is happening in the same state where just seven years ago, the deadliest attack on the LGBTQ community in modern history took place when a gunman killed 49 people and injured 53 others at Pulse nightclub in Orlando. 
One of the survivors of that attack, Brandon Wolf, says that that moment is what inspired him to become an activist for LGBTQ rights and to write his new book titled A Place for Us. Brandon is press secretary for Equality Florida and joins me now. My friend, it's so good to see you. Thank you. It's good to see you, too. It is great uh, to to see you in person uh, here. And I want to first start talking, go back a little bit before we get to the book, to the origins of how you became known is the worst way possible. Um, The worst thing that could have happened to you happened. Um, And your reaction to that was to come out and speak for your friends and speak for other people. I wonder in looking back on that now and thinking about where we are in terms of LGBTQ rights, how that feels for you to have that have been your start and have this be your reality. You know, when you lose someone you love very much, you go through a range of emotions. And I expected a lot of them, grief and pain, sometimes joy when you remember the, you know, the best memories, but you also experience fear. You know, you're afraid you're going to forget who they were. And so you save old voicemails. So you remember how they sounded when they answered the phone, you save old t-shirts. You remember how they smelled when they walked in the door. And I was deeply afraid that people would never get to know them, that they would only ever matter because of how they died and not just how they lived. So when I look back seven years ago to the promise I made to fight for a world that my best friends would be proud of, one where they're remembered because of the beauty they brought to this world, I'm really proud to be able to share my story. I know things are tough. Yeah. Things are really challenging, but I am so proud that we're in a place where we can share our stories authentically and unapologetically. And I say, if this book gets onto the ban block in Governor Ron oh, DeSantis's Florida, <laughs> bring when? it on. I'm ready for that. <laughs> you mean when? Oh, well, okay, let me read a little excerpt from and read you to you. Um, this is describing Pulse on the night of the shooting, and this is you writing. In many ways, Pulse embodied the sense of community I had discovered after moving to Orlando. It was one of the first places where I held hands with someone I had a crush on without glancing over my shoulder first, an exhilarating act of defiance that might have put me in danger almost anywhere else. It was one of the only spaces where I dared to let my guard down, to be a little messy and unpolished, unafraid of who might be watching. Tucked off the beaten path, hidden from sight, Pulse was a place where I could be all of myself, a safe space. That actually breaks my heart to read that because I wonder if a Pulse could even exist now in Florida. Well, we do have safe spaces and like safe spaces throughout you know, the existence of LGBTQ people in this country, they're lifelines we carve out for ourselves. They're refuges hidden away from a world that threatens violence and discrimination against us every time we walk out the door. But I think, you know, those spaces are under siege right now. You have a governor again in Ron DeSantis and his legislative allies that are doing everything they can to weaponize government against those spaces, threatening bars for hosting drag brunches and and terrorizing members of the community. It does feel like those spaces are under siege. But the truth is, no matter how hard they try to erase them, no matter how hard they, they try to, to combat our existence, our visibility, we're not going anywhere and those spaces aren't going anywhere. We're going to create them, yeah. whether it's in someone's living room or around a kitchen island or a place like Pulse Nightclub, we are always going to create safety yeah. for one another. You know, your journey has taken you, um, you know, from, you know, being a kid that felt sort of out of place, you know, in the world uh, to the White House, to the vice president's reception for for pride. Um, But one of the things that I was that I found most poignant was you did a tweet about how your grandma Mm. reacted to this book, because this book is very honest. Yeah, it is. How tell that story about how your grandma reacted when she read your book. 
My grandma is a beautiful, strong woman, as most grandmas are. Yeah. And when I lost my mom at a young age, she really stepped in and, and took care of us. And I built a, a deep, meaningful bond with her. But I never really came out to her, like officially, because I was worried that that might hurt her, that that might damage our relationship. And ultimately, that sort of drove a wedge between us. I you know, moved away to Orlando and lost touch. And so when she texted me, reaching out, asking if she could get a copy of the book, I yeah. thought, okay, well, yeah. I guess this is <laughs> Now. This is happening. I sent her a book. I signed it. Uh, and a few days later, she sent me a text message back and had so many lovely things to say, as I noted in my tweet. But the, the words that were most powerful for me were, we loved you then and we love you now. Yeah. Uh, never underestimate the power of a grandma's love. Well, I love that. And I think that is the message that hopefully the LGBTQ community writ large is receiving, both from your activism, hopefully from the ways in which you speak on programs that are lucky to have you like mine, because you really are an inspiration. You know, you're a hero of mine. Thank and so you. Thank I appreciate you. you. And this is exciting. I cannot wait to finish reading your book. Thank you. I'll probably <laughs> cry through the whole thing. Probably. So I'm going to read it without my makeup on. Okay. <laughs> um, but I want to just let you close by giving some advice to the next you know, you, because between gun violence and anti-LGBTQ hate, we are really at this terrifying inflection point in the country. And there are a lot of young people, young Brandons, um, that are probably very afraid. What advice would you give them? When I was a kid, people that I cared about a lot would say things like, the world is never going to be ready for someone like you. You're always going to have to find a way to be black enough for some spaces, white enough for other spaces, and masculine enough for every space you move in. And that was so isolating for me. I spent so many years of my life just looking for a place to belong. The reason that I wrote this book so honestly and so vulnerably is because I want the next generation of me to know that they don't have to go in search of a place to belong, that they, that they have everything they need. They're perfect exactly as they are. They have every tool in their toolbox, and their only job is to live fully, proudly, authentically, unapologetically. And I hope that when they read this journey from start to finish, that they see themselves in it and they understand that they can do anything they put their minds to. Yeah. And I know they will, even in Florida. That's right. Especially in Florida. Especially (laughs) in Florida. Uh, Brandon Wolf, you are a hero. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great to be here. Really appreciate you. And congratulations on the book. Thank you. The book is called A Place for Us. I'm going to hold it up again. Okay, there it is. It's on the screen. So everybody can get one, buy a copy and buy one for a friend. All right, up next, I recently spoke with civil rights icon Merle Evers-Williams about her ongoing activism as she marked 60 years since the assassination of her beloved husband, Mississippi's first and most courageous NAACP leader, Medgar Evers. That is next. As the Supreme Court's right-wing majority systematically strips away the progress America made during the 20th century, you have to wonder how civil rights icons would feel about our highest court dismantling what they fought and even died for. Icons like Medgar Evers, who 60 years ago was assassinated by a white supremacist outside his home in Jackson, Mississippi. Evers was just 37 years old. A sniper fired a single shot from a high-powered rifle at Evers' silhouette. The bullet hit him in the back, crashed through his body, through a window into the house. As the Mississippi field secretary for the NAACP, he encouraged black Americans, including terrorized sharecroppers, teachers, and college students, to register to vote. He protested segregation in education and launched an investigation into the Emmett Till lynching. Sixty years after his assassination, I sat down with his widow, 
Merle Evers Williams, a national icon with her own civil rights legacy. She shared what Medgar Evers would feel about politics today. What do you think is the most important thing people should know about Medgar Evers? Medgar Evers was a devoted man who worked so hard and gave his life, actually, uh, for his people, for his country, and that he did not take no for an answer. Full speed ahead for those things that were truly necessary, not only for himself, his family, but all of the families and most of all his country. So much has changed in Mississippi. The airport that I landed in today is called Medgar Evers Airport. Yes. What do you think he would think of the United States today? I think Medgar would be very disappointed with the politics. Uh, I think we all realize that there are changes that come and go, some good and some not so good. But I do believe he would encourage more people to register and to vote. That was always a cause of his that he embraced uh, strongly. I think he would be pleased to see more people of color devote themselves to their communities and what's going on around. I think Metro would be very restless right now. And I would say he should be, as I am and uh, many other people, to be actively participant in change when there is need to be, preserving what should be preserved, of getting younger people more involved than they are now, I think would be an issue that he would gravitate to if not start on his own. So I want to ask you a a fun question. Um, I happen to know that you and Medgar loved Motown, that you, uh, it was one of your bonds that you loved to dance. Uh, So I have to ask you, what was your song, you and Medgar's song? Oh my goodness, I don't think I can give you one because we loved so many. We, we, we loved to dance, and uh, whether it was fast, slow, medium, uh, what have you. I really can't think of one in particular because there were so many. But if you look back uh, at records that came out in the 60s, late 50s and 60s, you could say, there they are, <laughs> there. So uh, I, I can't come up with a with any one special one now. It's just that both of us were music lovers, and I still am to this day. I've asked what the most important thing is people should know about Megger Evers. What's the most important thing people should know about Merle Evers Williams? That I'm human. I'm prone to error. I try not to make errors. I'm very strong about what I believe in. And I will go to the nth degree to see that that happens or takes place. Method was very much the same way. As you know, he gave his life for freedom of his people and and others as well. Um, Things have changed in the last, what, 10 years? Last five years. 
there are so many differences of opinion. I find myself asking the question, do we ever come together on any particular issue? An answer seems almost like no. But perhaps that's good for our society because we change, exchange ideas rather than fight ideas. And that's very, very healthy, I believe. That's the joy I have of learning, still learning. And knowing that I'm alive, I can think. Yeah, and I can speak. I can say what I have to say about it. And I don't have to feel ashamed about it. I don't have to hide about it. I can just be me and try to be helpful, not only to myself, but to others as well. Is she not fabulous at 90? Our special two-hour edition of The Readout continues in a moment with new reporting about Trump's major effort to overturn his 2020 election defeat in Arizona. Stay with us. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console console. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Welcome back to the second hour of a special edition of The Readout. As Donald Trump was back on the campaign trail this weekend for his 2024 presidential bid, we're learning more about his efforts to overturn the results of the last presidential election. The Washington Post is reporting on Trump's pressure campaign toward then-Arizona Governor Doug Ducey. You may remember this infamous moment in November of 2020 when Governor Ducey was in the midst of certifying President Biden's win when he received a call with the ringtone, Hail to the Chief, that he quickly sent to voicemail. We later learned that it was Trump himself on the other end of that call that Ducey declined to answer. They later connected, but Ducey never said what the call was about. According to the Post, it was Trump pushing to get the governor to overturn the election results. The Post reports four people familiar with the call said Trump spoke specifically about his shortfall of more than 10,000 votes in Arizona, and then espoused a range of false claims that he said would show that he overwhelmingly won the election in the state. And he encouraged Ducey to study them. Adding, two of those people say Trump repeatedly asked Vice President Mike Pence to call Ducey and prod him to find evidence to substantiate Trump's claims of fraud. In an interview over the weekend, Pence confirmed that he did check in with Ducey, but denied ever ex exerting any pressure. Of course, it wouldn't be the only time Trump would pressure a state official to overturn 
the state's election result. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state. Now, I should note that Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger met with investigators from special counsel Jack Smith's office last week in their investigation into Trump's role in trying to reverse his 2020 defeat. The Post also notes that it's unclear if Ducey has been contacted by Smith's office over his call. And new reporting from The Wall Street Journal indicates that the special counsel's investigation has taken a growing interest in the role Trump's lawyers and other figures played in the efforts to overturn Trump's loss, including creating slates of fake electors. That includes issuing subpoenas and asking questions centered on several key figures in those efforts, like Trump's so-called elite strike force of the Kraken lady, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, and Jenna Ellis, among others. The Journal also provided more details on the recent interview between federal prosecutors and Giuliani, citing, among other things, of interest was a December 2020 meeting in the Oval Office, during which Powell pitched a plan to have the U.S. military seize control of the voting machines. Also of interest was the role of lawyer John Eastman, the brains, if one wants to call it that, behind the fake electors memo. Joining me now is MSNBC justice and legal analyst Anthony Coley. He's a former DOJ spokesperson under Attorney General Merrick Garland. And Charles Coleman, former Brooklyn prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst. Thank you both for being here. Anthony, I do want to start with you because the, the, the sense that one gets in looking at all the different places uh, that Jack Smith is looking and sort of burrowing um, is that there is a potential that there could be another active case against Donald Trump based on a lot of things. Um, we had been thinking uh, it was more about perhaps a second fake documents uh, or showing, sorry, classified documents case, maybe in New Jersey uh, or specifically on the January 6th insurrection. But this feels more about the pressure campaign. How do you see it? Right. I think that's exactly right, Joy. There is a lot we do not know about this investigation. And all of the lawyers you just mentioned, Giuliani and others, they have a right to be concerned, uh, but they shouldn't be surprised here. Right. I think uh, all of us know that um, there was a series of court rulings, uh, about 60 different federal courts in the winter of 2020 that found that all of these election charges didn't have any real legal merit. Um, and Bill Barr himself, then he was sitting in the seat uh, as United States Attorney General. He said very publicly to the Associated Press and to others that there wasn't enough uh, fraud in the 2020 election to change the outcome of that election. So um, it shouldn't be really a surprise to uh, to to anyone uh, of these of these lawyers. Uh, my hope is that uh, what we are seeing from uh, Jack Smith and his prosecutors, despite some of the rhetoric, right, they have in many cases, uh, Trump has called him deranged. He has attacked this man's wife, um, Jack Smith's wife. What we are seeing is Jack Smith determined to pursue justice uh, without fear or favor. And I think everyone who loves freedom and truth and, and law uh, should be happy about that. And the last thing I'll say, Joy, is to your uh, to your to your question, um, 
This Justice Department is uh, following the facts wherever they lead. And that's what we should all hope for in any criminal investigation. You know, and there's also the case, uh, you know, Ms. Melissa Murray, uh, Charles uh, Coleman, she coined the term making attorneys get attorneys is what MAGA really stands right. for. And I wonder how fearful, Charles, um, some of these attorneys ought to be, the Jenna Ellis's, the strike force folks, um, because it does seem like they are like, like the Justice Department is zeroing back in on the fake elector scheme that a lot of Trump's lawyers had something to do with. Well, Joy, I'm not convinced that MAGA is not about to stand for my attorneys got arrested in a little while. And I do think it's really important that we identify the irony here. Let's focus for a quick second on the fact that right now Donald Trump is actively campaigning and peddling a narrative around the DOJ, supposedly interfering with an election. When, in fact, he is also under investigation in multiple jurisdictions for having actually interfered in the last election. And so I just think the irony of that is important to point out to viewers and to the public to understand that as he peddles this narrative, if anyone knows what election interference is, it's actually him because he's actually someone who in multiple states is under investigation for that. That being said, I do think that Jack Smith is doing what a prosecutor does. And as Anthony already pointed out, you have to follow the facts wherever they take you. It's important to understand that this may be distinctly different from the Georgia case in as much as with that case, with, with, with Raffensperger, we actually have the phone call, we have the recording, we know what was said, and we know it was clear. Whereas with this case, it's kind of left up to the interpretation of the different accounts of first Mike Pence and then the other people who were on the call as to the degree of pressure which was being placed on Donald Trump. So from a legal standpoint, what that's going to mean is Everything comes back to the timeline. What did you know at the time that you made these calls? And then what were what was said on the actual calls? And so I think that is going to be the linchpin that determines whether a prosecution moves forward with respect to Arizona as compared to Georgia, where you have that actual recording and you know what was said. Point. Hey, to stay with you just for a second, Charles, because the, the, the other thing is, right, we don't know what Trump might have to fear from what a Mike Pence might say or a Doug Ducey might say to Jack Smith. But there are other people. Um, so former Trump campaign official named uh, Mike Roman, who was involved in efforts to put forward these slates of electors, um, he potentially was involved. And this was a White House official. And then there is also a, a, a sort of female member of Trump's orbit. Um, who was actually apparently shown documents, maybe potentially in New Jersey, um, who are folks are talking about, who's still involved in Trump world. And she was a campaign aide to him. Her name is Susie Wiles, one of his most trusted advisors. She's actually leading, she was leading his reelection effort uh, and works for his PAC, allegedly was shown a classified map in August of, or September of 2021. When people like that are getting dragged before the before Jack Smith's grand jury. How does that work when they're still in his orbit? Well, it's a very big deal when you're talking about the fact that they're still connected to Donald Trump, because the question really becomes as a prosecutor, what is it going to take for you to fold? How much pressure right. is it going to take for you to begin to understand that if you do not cooperate, if you do not let us know what it is that you know, you could potentially be going down with a sinking ship. And so the fact that they're still connected to Donald Trump is not only an indication of his own bravado, but perhaps their level of allegiance, which 
for most people just does not jive with common sense in as much as you see that this is a person who is being indicted at this point on the federal level uh, by Jack Smith on this on the local level by Alvin Bragg and potentially uh, forthcoming charges on the state level with Bonnie Willis and elsewhere. And so is this something that you want to continue to be associated with or are you going to try to cut a deal with the DOJ, let them know what you know and basically get off this sinking ship? Accuse Stephanie Grisham, Anthony. Let me just play what she said. She is another former yeah. uh, White House aide uh, on the press side. And this is what she says, not that she heard, but what she saw. Take a look. Look, you know Donald Trump. Is it plausible Trump was showing classified documents to people in private meetings? The short answer is yes. I watched him show uh, documents to people at Mar-a-Lago on the, uh, the dining room patio. So he has no respect for classified information, never did. Uh, I, mean, what, what, I mean, what's the over under on literally everyone who worked around Trump and everyone who's been in line with his pack eventually being before this grand jury? Because it seems like there are endless people that Jack Smith could talk to. There are endless people. And I just I, 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 you know, I, I shouldn't be surprised anymore, Joy, when I hear stuff like that. But it still um, boggles the mind that um, this former president, this president, Donald Trump, could be so cavalier with our nation's. Um, some of our nation's uh, top secrets. We're talking about things that at its core um, could put the men and women in our military at risk. We're talking about people who could put our assets at, at risk. And the fact that he is going around in such a cavalier manner, showing things off on a patio, I just really speaks to the fact that he, quite honestly, shouldn't have had access to this information uh, to start with. Let me read to you, Charles, a little bit from the indictment, uh, from the indictment, the 37-count indictment. In August or September of 2021, when he was no longer president, Trump met in his office at the Bedminster Club with a representative of his political action committee. Um, during the meeting, Trump commented that an ongoing military operation in Country B was not going well. Trump showed the PAC representative a classified map of Country B and told the PAC representative that he should not be showing the map to the PAC representative and not to get too close. That could be Susie Wiles. We don't know who that is. They don't name the person. But it, it, are you surprised that given all of that information that Donald Trump was not charged with disseminating? Or do you think that's something that could still happen? I don't think that anything's off the table, Joy. And I think it's important to understand that Jack Smith is continuing to move very methodically in terms of how he conducts this investigation and gathers additional information. The fact that that nugget appeared in the current indictment does not in any way preclude him from moving forward with a prosecution around Bedminster if it's found that there's enough uh, evidence there to meet the probable cause threshold for an indictment. And as a prosecutor, I can, as a former prosecutor, I can tell you, you want to make sure that you feel like you have enough to move forward beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the standard you would need at trial. So if we see that a level of information emerge or if Jack Smith discovers that through the course of his investigation, that absolutely is something that we could see in the future, despite the fact that we haven't seen it now. There are a lot of things that Jack Smith is working on. Just because we haven't heard anything about January 6th doesn't necessarily mean that that's off the table. We have had an unprecedented amount of access and insight to the investigations that this prosecutor is taking place because of the fact that investigative journalists have been doing a crack shot job of getting information out to the public as these things are happening. But typically, when investigations are occurring, you don't know anything about what's going on. Right. You don't even know the direction. 
direction in which a prosecutor is heading. So it's important to understand that Jack Smith can take this in a variety of different directions, in a variety of different ways. And so I wouldn't say that anything, Bedminster included, is off the table. And Anthony, you you know him. We don't. I don't. At least um, is he is he a guy that would potentially, particularly if that Florida judge takes things sideways and seems to be trying to stuff the investigation, you know, into a closet, um, to open to to do multiple additional indictments, potentially Bedminster, potentially in D.C. all at the same time. Sure, he absolutely could. Uh, I think there would have to be a type of triggering event, and I defer to Charles, who's the prosecutor here, that would um, uh, that would uh, make him uh, try to uh, go around uh, the judge in that case, or perhaps appeal to the Eleventh Circuit or go to the District of New Jersey. But absolutely, here I think the overarching goal is to pursue justice without fear or favor and to make sure that everyone and anyone who, with regard to the January 6th investigation, um, is criminally responsible. Um, and with the regard to the documents investigation, that people are held accountable uh, for their crimes. And what would be that kind of a triggering event, Charles? What, what could you foresee that being potentially? Well, I think it would have to basically show that there was a substantial amount of documents that were being held in Bedminster or that a significant amount of action uh, pointing toward the illegality occurred at Bedminster. I mean, you know, we have evidence of one incident that we have been that we've seen dictated in the indictment. But if there are more and if that shows that that was also sort of a hub, if you will, for storing classified documents after he was responsible for returning them to the National Archives and refused, then we could potentially see the same sort of action with respect to an indictment take place here uh, in the Northeast uh, as we have in Florida. Anthony Coley and Charles Coleman, who's now going to new one. What is it? My my attorney's got arrested. (laughs) At at, at some point, it could also be, man, ain't getting a pardon, except for that's a P at the end. So now I'm just going to be doing this all night. You know, that's for the rest of the day. And it's your fault, Charles Coleman. Thank you. Charles Coleman Jr., by the way. His daddy, Charles Coleman. Charles Coleman, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, the flawed false equivalence of Republican attacks on the children of Democratic presidents. Newsflash, folks. Unlike Jared and Ivanka, Hunter Biden and Chelsea Clinton were, were not, not members of their father's administration. The Readout continues after this. On December 18, 1972, a young mother took her three children to pick up a Christmas tree. She and her 13-month-old daughter would never make it back home. Her name was Nellia Biden, Joe Biden's first wife. Their two sons, Bo and Hunter, survived the accident in which a tractor trailer sideswiped their car. Hunter Biden, who was three, suffered a fractured skull. Bo, who was a year older, suffered multiple broken bones. The boys got to grow up. But Bo Biden died of brain cancer back in 2015 at age 46. Hunter has been transparent about his struggles, including his battle with addiction. And like millions of Americans, he continues to struggle, including with the trauma of losing his mother, sister and brother. Two weeks ago, Hunter Biden agreed to plead guilty to a pair of tax related misdemeanors tied to a probe into his taxes and foreign business dealings, bringing a close to a five year criminal investigation started during the Trump administration with a Trump-appointed prosecutor. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden have repeatedly said that they love and support their son, while acknowledging that he has made mistakes. 
Republicans are hardly satisfied with any of that and have done everything in their power to use Hunter Biden's past and his struggle with addiction as an anchor to try to drag down his father. Angry that their guy, Trump, was indicted for obscenely brazen criminality, Republicans have vowed an eye for an eye. They currently have multiple investigations into pretty much every aspect of Hunter Biden's businesses and finances. Hunter Biden has acknowledged that his last name has afforded him opportunities that most Americans don't have, but he has denied any wrongdoing. I'm a human. You know what? Did I make a mistake? Well, maybe in the, in, in the grand scheme of things, yeah. But did I make a mistake based upon some unethical lapse? Absolutely not. They feel like they have the license to go out and say whatever they want. It feels to me like living in um, some kind of Alice in Wonderland. That doesn't satisfy Republicans either. And maybe it's in part because they actually seem to enjoy attacking the family members of Democratic presidents. Back in the early 90s, when President Bill Clinton, while he was notching up bipartisan victories and balancing the budget, right-wingers were busy attacking his teenage daughter. Let's take a look and see who is the cute kid in the White House. No, 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 that's not the kid. That's, that's the kid. We try to... Chelsea Clinton recently noted how creepy it was that she was the obsession of so many adults. Rush Limbaugh and others, but notably Rush Limbaugh, and I think this is now somewhat well-known, like was, was quite vicious to me. Said terrible things about like, my parents and called me the White House dog repeatedly. And how old were you at this point? I was 12, 13. And, yeah. and I remember thinking like, this is just so at best odd and at worst just wrong like why is this old man like obsessed with me like this is so weird and creepy and, and do you have your Sasha and Malia Obama were even younger when they entered the White House but that didn't spare them from insults being hurled their way by Republicans over their facial expressions or the clothes they wore as for Trump's adult children Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner two fully grown nepo babies with zero political experience they were handed powerful positions in the Trump White House with broad portfolios, with not a peep from the Republicans and their friends in right-wing media. During their White House years, they reported between 172 million and 640 million dollars in outside income. They should have never been allowed to work at the White House, quite frankly. In fact, Jared couldn't even get a security clearance until Trump intervened. But the Department of Justice reversed decades of precedent to grant Trump's wish that his children be allowed to work in the White House and profit from it. If the Republicans are so outraged about financial wrongdoing, you'd think they might want to investigate how Jared skated out of the White House to a $2 billion investment from the Saudi Public Investment Fund, which is run by Mohammed bin Salman, who, by the way, had a U.S.-based journalist murdered with a bone saw. But, you know, vive la différence. Which brings us to another important distinction between Joe Biden's son and Javanka. Hunter Biden has no role in the Biden administration. He's a private citizen. Republicans are investigating this private citizen and using information peddled by disgraced former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani back in 2019 to literally persecute him simply for being a Biden. An obsession that got Donald Trump impeached for the first time. After the break, we'll untangle what Republicans are claiming and just how specious their accusations really are. Stay with us.
If you ever flip over to Fox, there's a good chance you'll hear about Hunter Biden because they seem to think he is the biggest existential crisis facing America. Today, Hunter Biden's legal team tries to discredit the Internal Revenue Service whistleblowers as House Republicans want depositions from those involved in Hunter's sweetheart plea deal. I think the president only really has two options. Either he hands Hunter over to the the American public and to the Department of Justice, or he simply resigns and everybody forgets about it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) To boil it all down, (laughs) Republicans at Fox accused President Biden of running a criminal enterprise because basically that's what Trump and his kids were doing while he was in the White House. Oh, wait, sorry. Did I say that in my outside voice? Specifically, Republicans in their cable network accused Joe and Hunter Biden of accepting millions of dollars in cash to oust a former Ukrainian prosecutor because he wanted to investigate Hunter's role at an oil company called Burisma. Okay, so let's just do a quick fact check, shall we? So when Joe Biden was vice president of the United States during the Obama administration, part of his portfolio was foreign policy. In that vein, he, on behalf of the U.S., pushed for the removal of Ukraine's top prosecutor. His name was Viktor Shokin, not because he was investigating Burisma, but because he was corrupt and wasn't pursuing corruption in the Ukrainian government at the time, corruption that allowed Russia to manipulate and control Ukraine. The push for Ukraine to tackle corruption and therefore to stave off Russian interference was a project of the entire West, Europe and the U.S., not just Joe Biden. Also, the evidence Republicans claim to have of Joe Biden accepting a bribe does not appear to exist. If they have such evidence, they certainly haven't produced it. And by the way, these claims have been investigated and investigated and dismissed, even by Senate Republicans. And because they cannot provide any evidence that Joe and Hunter Biden were doing Trump-style corruption, Republicans are now targeting the plea deal Hunter Biden just struck on matters unrelated to any of this. In essence, They are accusing the Trump-appointed prosecutor of cutting a sweetheart deal because the current attorney general, Merrick Garland, somehow limited his investigation into Hunter, a claim the Trump-appointed prosecutor denied. Joining me now is David Korn, Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones, and Susan Del Percio, Republican strategist. Both are MSNBC political analysts. I'm going to start with you, David, because you are a journalist. And so I'm sure you've had the opportunity to take a look at these apparently very important claims for which uh, Joe Biden should simply hand hand Hunter over, just hand him over or resign. David Weiss is the federal prosecutor in Delaware. He is the Trump appointed prosecutor. His task was to spearhead this investigation. It started in 2018. The investigation initially focused on potential violations of tax and money laundering laws in Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings in China, particularly. This guy had an unlimited budget. He had the mandate of the Trump administration and he had unlimited time because obviously Mayor Garland ain't getting rid of nobody Trump put in. If he had evidence that Joe and Hunter Biden were taking bribes and doing crime, where is it? Well, that's just it. We don't have any evidence. We've had many members of the House Republican caucus come out and make accusations. And then when you say, well, where's the evidence? They go, well, we haven't gotten it yet. And they think that's an appropriate response and a legitimate response. Um, It's really, you know, conclusions first, then investigate. Um, A lot of this even tracks back 
to Rudy Giuliani working with a person who was identified as a Russian agent, who identified this person as a Russian agent, this Ukrainian fellow who was giving all this information about Hunter Biden being corrupt. It was Donald Trump's own U.S. Treasury Department. They certified this fellow who was working with Giuliani was a Russian agent and sanctioned him for election interference. That's election interference in the United States. So this has deep roots in what seems to be a Giuliani Russian disinformation campaign. And after all this time, it's like the John Durham investigation. Remember how that was going to end up sending Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton to Gitmo? Uh, they keep yeah. trying to weaponize these investigations to do political damage to their political foes, and they keep coming up relatively empty. And I would say that Hunter Biden, his business connections, w- were worth a good look by a congressional committee, as would be Jared Kushner's own connections, trading on a family mm-hmm. name. That's worth an investigation. But they can't even get that piece of this right, and they go right to these deep state conspiracy theories for which they have no proof. Right. And, you know, it's the scattershot sort of desperation that also tries to match information that we know is true about Trump by saying, well, we can find something worse about the Bidens, right? It's why Trump Mm -hmm. got impeached, is that he was trying to prove the real collusion was Ukraine colluding with the Bidens because he was colluding with Russia, right? It's like whenever they get caught doing something on the Republican side, it's like they have to match it. But, But talk a little bit about the way this has gone down this very weird road at which Republicans are angry that they can't get Hunter's nudes, that, they, that his nudes don't get published on, t- on, on Twitter, that it gets to a place where it's, it's bananas, where it's not even coherent anymore. The only piece that's coherent is that they're mad that Ukraine was no longer under the thumb of Russia, which is where apparently they want Ukraine to always be. Right. And let's not forget, there also the House Republicans are saying that Donald Trump is incompetent. Because he's not competent enough to get a to assign a special prosecutor to investigate Biden. Oh, wait, he did. And guess what? (laughs) As you said, they found nothing. And it's worth noting that he also said he felt no pressure by the Department of Justice to end his investigation or have any particular findings. So it's kind of, you know, the best I come to, Joy, is that. We went from a Trump administration of having alternative facts to a Republican majority living in an alternative reality where they just get to flip the script and they think it's going to fly. Ironically, those people, what they're really doing is putting the majority, the Republican majority at stake. They're going to cause those 17 Republicans, freshman Republicans that came in on in Biden one districts, they're going to lose because no one can defend that kind of nonsense. So the more they spew it out there, there's no logic for it. Like I said, the best I can think of is the alternate universe. Well, I mean, the thing is also no one cares. Okay, Other than people who watch Fox, you know, two or three million people a night, nobody knows who Hunter Biden is. If you, if you walked up to them in the street, they look that guy looks a little like Joe Biden. No one knows who he is. And then when you know the facts of him, it's actually sad. You know, a lot of Americans are struggling with drug addiction. And so do they think that makes him less relatable to families who might have somebody who's also dealing with addiction? Okay, he didn't pay his taxes. Donald Trump never paid taxes. I don't think he ever paid taxes. So it's like the things about him that you know make you kind of feel bad for him. 
rather than think he's a criminal. So it's like they're not. And the only other thing people might know about him is that the guy who got fired from Fox News, what was the guy's name? He used to have the eight o'clock show. I don't even whatever his name was that used to have the eight o'clock Tucker Tucker that he begged that same guy. He begged Hunter Biden to help him get his son into Georgetown. That's the only other thing people know about this guy. Yeah. And, you know, it's really interesting that they're trying to villainize him because you're right. He will come off as very sympathetic once um, if they continue to do so in a general election. And it's also worth noting not once did I see media go after Donald Trump's minor you know, son, who's a minor under the age of 18. His his son, I don't even like mentioning his name because it's just not the right thing to do. But his son has basically sailed through the last six years. I know there's been, you know, nonsense talk out there, but not but in mainstream news. And that's, that's exactly Democrats wouldn't dare. And they didn't even learn that lesson. He's a child. Yeah. You mean He's the a thing kid. here like is nobody can't yeah, go on. I'm sorry. The thing here no, is that they are making they are making allegations that Hunter Biden was in cahoots with Joe Biden for you know tens of millions of dollars. You know, Nancy Mace, a House Republican, came out of a meeting and said it's a crime family. It's a crime family, I tell you. And then where's the evidence? Well, we don't have the evidence. And so they are, you know, they they are that you you used the word desperation before. They are desperately trying to link. Joe Biden and, you know, get at his right. family reputation here by bringing in Hunter. And, you know, listen, I think it's fair to investigate, you know, business dealings of people close into the president, including sure. relatives. But you do it reasonably and responsibly. And here they are, you know, thinking that they have a smoking gun when yeah. they don't even have a water pistol. And, you know, I think, <laughs> you know, it will, it will mobilize and play to the far right. But it is not addressing the issues of student debt, inflation, or anything else out there that they claim the Democrats aren't uh, addressing. So it is, it, it is very narrow casting. It's kind of just the hate campaign of hatred that you see on Fox. And, um, you know, as, as of now, I, I do think they look foolish the way that Durham ended up looking yeah. foolish, the way that Rudy Giuliani looked foolish. All these great investigators, America's mayor, and they come up with disinformation and propaganda and at the end of the day it doesn't move the needle politically and that's kind of where they are now with hunter biden let me give chris christie the last word on this chris christie your witness the trump family has been involved in grifting for quite some time jared kushner six months after he leaves the white house gets two billion dollars from the saudi sovereign wealth fund when Donald Trump had put him in a position to be in the Middle East. What was Jared Kushner doing in the Middle East? We had Rex Tillerson and Mike Pompeo as secretaries of state. We didn't need Jared Kushner. He was put there to make those relationships, and then he cashed in on those relationships when he left the office. So what Donald Trump's doing now is just a continuation of what he's permitted his family to do over the entire course of his time as president. Susan, you know, political malpractice to me, and you are a political strategist, would seem to be to serve up the opponents of your candidate to do what Chris Christie just did. Because the more you talk about the so-called Biden corruption, Biden corrupt crime family, it just invites people who can do it like Chris Christie to do what he just did. Your thoughts? Yeah. Chris Christie's prosecuting Donald Trump, and that's what it comes down to. And I think he's gaining a lot of popularity for it. So all this talk that Donald Trump wants to try and do about the Bidens, good luck with that, because 
I think the case against Donald Trump, who wants to be president, he has to explain, you know, he's going to have to explain himself, which he can never do. So yeah. I think it's pretty much leave it to Chris Christie. And the worst nightmare Donald Trump could ever have is Chris Christie, a bully versus a bully. Watch them fight. And I'm like, let them fight. David Korn and Susan Del Percio. And I think Chris Christie's better at it. We'll see what happens. Thank you both very much. Thank you. And coming up, I recently spoke with Yusuf Salam of the Exonerated Five about the karmic justice of his apparent victory in a New York City council race in Harlem. That inspiring conversation is next. Having to be kidnapped from my home as a 15-year-old child to be lodged in the belly of the beast. I was gifted to turn that experience into the womb of America. I was gifted because I was able to see it for what it really was. A system that was trying to make me believe that I was my ancestor's wildest nightmare. But I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. That was exonerated five-member Yusuf Salam declaring victory in the primary for Harlem's city council seat after he appeared to win by a landslide. It is a stunning moment for Salam, who three decades ago was one of the five black teenagers who Donald Trump said should be put to death after they were falsely accused of raping a white woman in Central Park. Now, Salam will get to be an advocate for his community, while Trump is facing two indictments with more than 30 counts each in federal court and in state court in New York. Karma is real. Youssef Salam joins me now. Um, well, I have to start by saying congratulations to you. And I have to just, you know, per- one point of personal privilege, it's just such a wonderful feeling, um, having gotten to know you through the newspaper, um, as also a teenager, only a little older than you and going through the agonizing hell from way outside in the safety of my auntie's home, um, and getting to talk to you now in this situation, when you are about to represent Harlem, um, in the city council, it just, it it is a good feeling. And I wonder what that feeling is like for you. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still, it's, it's a dream. I'm still living. I'm on cloud nine. I got to tell you, you know, the memory of everything I've gone through is like full circle, being able to understand that that which I came through was to make sure that I was prepared for what the next journey would come, like what would come on the, on the journey, this door that opened up, the fact that I can speak truth to power, the fact that I can carry the voices of people who have been counted out, pushed to the back into the halls of power, my very own Harlem home. This is such a beautiful thing for me, for Harlemites. I, I'm, ah, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm still, I'm still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can only moment, imagine. I can only, well, I wonder if you had time to like sort of step back and think about, you know, what your experiences, the horrific experiences you had, um, but also the sort of galvanizing impact of the public rooting for you all um, and fighting for you all. And so many people who never let you all be forgotten um, all the way through your exoneration and subsequent cases against the city of New York. What has that <laughs> taught you that you are going to then bring to the table you know, from all of those experiences as a representative of your community? You know, that's taught me that as a person who has 10 children, who 
part of my, many of my children, in fact, are part of the group of people who have created new language that we are all trying to understand, things like YOLO and things of that nature, right? And I remember when I first heard the term YOLO, immediately when it was explained to me, I realized that in the young person's mind, when they've seen George Floyd get murdered, Breonna Taylor get murdered, you know, Trayvon Martin, of course, wearing a hoodie, playing your music if you're in Florida, you know, Ramali Graham here, Eric Gardner in Staten Island, you know, it, it occurred to me that in the young person's mind, they don't believe that there's a tomorrow. And so there's a certain sense of hopelessness that we're living through. And here we are 34 years later, looking at this whole trajectory of the experience, the arc of moral justice, if you will. Here I was 15 years old and now I'm 49. And I think what I represent really is the fact that it's possible that young people can look at a person like me and say, if he was able to grow through something like that, I most def definitely can get through anything. Because if you can understand the why, right? Why did I go through that? Why was I, was, wh why did I grow through that, right? I got to change that language. Why did I grow through that? I grew through it in order to understand the system from the inside out so that when the time came, I could really be an advocate for our people, understanding really what the pain points are. If I, as I've often said, those who have been close to the pain have to have a seat at the table. And what better way to lead than to serve our people? Uh, amen to that. Uh, you took the ad that uh, Donald Trump took out against you and uh, your brothers, uh, and you turned it into your own ad. <laughs> and uh, he said, bring back the death penalty. What you said uh, is that now that you've been indicted and are facing criminal charges, I do not resort to hatred, bias, or racism as you once did, even though 34 years ago you actively called for my death and the death of four other innocent children. I wish you no harm. Uh, that is incredible grace. Uh, and you're a gracious man. Uh, and I wonder if uh, your brothers uh, sort of agree with that sort of sentiment of kind of moving past it and whether you've talked to them since uh, you won this resounding primary victory and what they think of all of this. I got to tell you, they are definitely, oh my goodness, this is just such a proud moment. You know, I've gotten so many cheers from our group, from my, my sacred brotherhood that it's been amazing, amazing, amazing. You know, I, I'm I'm quite aware of statements like our great James Baldwin, where he said to be African-American is to be African without memory and American without privilege. And so here we are. And I'm, my 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 words really is that I have hope. I have hope that we can one day become the United States of America as opposed to the divided states of America. Hope that one day we will really be able to see equality and in fact, also experience equity. You know, so much has transpired and much of it is really to get us to believe that we were second class citizens. You know, even when I look at the documents that founded this country, we the people, it starts. And if we just take a pregnant pause, black and brown people, black people in general, were not considered a whole human being. And so, you know, to have the 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 community lift me up, to have my brothers that I experienced this with you know, be along for the ride. They're here for all of it. They they enjoy it. They love it. I mean, it is so full circle. And I got to tell you, I can't go anywhere now without someone saying, can I take a picture with you? And I love that because I represent that hope that we all need. I represent the fact that we have to begin to count on ourselves, bet on ourselves. We have to begin to also plan in 50 to 100 year cycles. Because if we plan, or we don't have a plan, if we say, we're not guaranteed tomorrow and we start living in hopelessness, 
continue hopeless living for five years, you will be in a hole that you can't get out of. We have to live yeah. on purpose and with purpose and all know that we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. That, yeah, that is a sermon. And I, the first time I got to finally meet you in person, you know what I said? Can I take a picture with you? And the next time I see you, I want to also take another picture with you. I'm so proud of you. And uh, I'm so excited for you and for Harlem and for New York and Thank for all of us, for the culture. Yusuf Salam. Doctor, let me get it right. Dr. Yusuf Salam. Thank you. Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate you so much. And that is tonight's readout. Have a great 4th of July. Here on MSNBC, we are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.